the scripture says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even if Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That is a challenging thing to read. It's a very challenging thing to preach, especially since I don't have a wife and I never have had a wife. Though that might make it actually easier for me. But this text requires some thought, doesn't it? And especially so in our age and culture. You know, when it was written, I think it had the, actually the opposite impact from what it has today. Paul's teaching, more broadly speaking, about wives and their relationships to their husbands would have been considered radically liberating for women in those days. Because in those days, a Jewish man had simple authority over his wife to, to such a degree that she could be regarded like one of his children. In the popular culture, Paul belonged to. Well, that certainly is no longer the case. I've included in your bulletin this morning a list of scriptures about marriage and especially as it relates to wives. And one of the things we want to observe this morning is that These instructions are for wives, not for women. So to say, wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord is not the same as women submit to men. It doesn't mean that at all. Though I think in the history of human society, it has been taken that way. But I think to really discuss this in any kind of reasonable way, we've got to go back. In fact, we have to go back to the very beginning, to the creation of husbands and wives, which, by the way, is the very beginning of the story of humanity. Human beings were created in the first place as a husband and a wife. And that is interesting. And it has a real bearing on what on earth is Paul talking about here. Now, we also need to remember the context that we discussed last week 
and that is the general commandment to the church, to the body of believers, to those who know Christ, to those who put their faith in Christ, who know the grace of God in Christ, to everyone, we have this instruction, which is the previous sentence in this text. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we talked about this last time. Every believer is called upon to live in submission to the others. And we saw how this even extends to the people in the world around us. It's not just limited to the fellowship of the church. A Christian should be characterized by this word, submissive. Well, that also doesn't sound really good to us when we first hear it. And we needed to develop an understanding of what, what exactly does that mean. And it's not as simple as we tend to think of it. And we're going to talk about just about everything we talked about this, last week. We're going to talk about, again, this week, with specific reference to wives. So, we're going to begin with this, however. What is the purpose of marriage? And we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We read, The announcement of God's plan in chapter 1 of book 1 in the Scriptures, where he says, God said, let us make man and by man we mean humanity, in our image after our likeness. And let them, so we're not talking about one, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that is the announcement of God's plan. That's the carrying out of God's plan. It's a summary sentence. Male and female, he created them. So one of the things we might want to notice, we will notice, is that marriage in humanity is an image-bearing thing. That God is not done making man in his own image until he makes them male and female. The story of this is in the next chapter. You're familiar with this story, perhaps. You know, throughout the book of Genesis, as we go through the creation story at various stages, God looks at what he's done and says, that's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then in chapter 2, he says, it's not good. Something's not good in God's creation. What is the thing that is not good? 
the thing that is not good, is that the man would be alone. So God's not done yet. And marriage has an image-bearing purpose. Marriage in humanity shows the relational nature of God. And God is a relational God in his eternal being. Because God is a triune God. He has a relationship, a set of relationships in one being, three eternal persons in one eternal God. And so when he sets out to make us in his image, he makes us relational beings, and it is built into the marriage relationship. In the Trinity, one being eternally exists in three persons. They're distinguishable in relation to each other, but they are one God. And this fellowship includes a mutual submission and love. A serving love. The fellowship has, this fellowship has the, the headship of the Father. He's called the Father. Yet, each and all of the three persons are entirely God. The Son does not lack any aspect of the divine nature. Whatever there is to being God, the Son possesses, the Spirit possesses, the Father possesses. They are one God. So this headship lies in their voluntary, mutually agreed upon way of relating to one another. I know. (laughs) This is hard to wrap your head around. So when God says in the scripture, male and female, he created them, men and women are created in every respect, in every respect, their physical being, their mental being, their emotional being, their psychological being, their spiritual being, to bear God's Trinitarian image in relation to each other in marriage. So they are joined by God in chapter 2 and become one. So there's two people. They're both just as much in the image of God, each as the other. They're both human beings, equal in every respect as human beings. There's not, one is not above the other in their status before God. They both reflect his nature into the world, and one of the ways they do that is in their relationship to each other. So the purpose of marriage is image-bearing. By the way, this is, according to Scripture, the foundation of human society. The command is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the material creation. Human society is a family. Only one. Only one. We are all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. 
The husband and wife relationship is the heart and the source of that family. Today, that's true. The husband and wife relationship is the source of a family. It is the family. It is the basis of all human society. It is the simple fact that the, this family is a fellowship of related people. Related. A fellowship. So, if we go back to the story of the creation of this family in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, we read God saying at the beginning of the story, it is not good. This is the first thing that's not good in the things he's made. How can anything be not good that God has made? Well, there's only one way, and that is he's not done making it. It's incomplete. The man is alone, and that is not yet fulfilling the goal. The goal of a society, the goal of a family, the goal of a relationship, a fellowship, a fellowshipping creation. A creation that fellowships with God, and out of that fellowship, fellowships with each other. And so God says, it's not good that the man to be alone. I will make him a suitable partner. And that is a really accurate translation of the Hebrew text here. A suitable partner. You could say it like this. A partner like himself. The old uh, King James Version called this a help meet <laughs> But the word meet here is like we meet. That is somebody on the same level. And the word helper is not a great translation of this word. Though certainly a suitable partner could be expected to be a good helper. But in English, at least, the word helper sort of puts things on an unequal footing, which is not in this word. A suitable partner in this text is a person on the same level who partners. A companion. A companion, just exactly the sort of companion needed. You see, when God made Adam, he did not make a complete humanity. Very interesting. We should notice, by the way, that there's not a single aspect of God's stated purpose when he says, when he gives the commandment, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, there's not a single one of those things Adam can do by himself. Not one. So God makes him a suitable partner. But first, there's a search. <laughs> first, God makes a bunch of animals. It's kind of a funny story, really. God says, you know, it's not good. I'll make Adam a suitable partner. And so he, makes, he starts making things. Animals. And he brings him to Adam, the scripture says, to see what he'll say about it. 
so there's like a parade. <laughs> and Okay, how about this? Okay, how about this? And the scripture says at the end of that odd story about creating all the animals to see what Adam would call them, at the end of that it says, but there was not found a suitable partner. So, God puts Adam to sleep. God takes a piece of Adam. Very important. God takes a piece of Adam and forms the woman from Adam. And then he presents the woman to Adam. Here's what Adam says. Finally, you read it, it's in there. It says, at last, at last, at last. By the way, this is the only time in the whole creation story where God's assessment is not good and God's assessment is not not good. God's assessment now is very good. It's like he, God stops and says, there you've got it. And so the suitable partner is made from Adam. She is just as human. She is also made in the likeness of God, but she is not another Adam. She brings what he doesn't bring. And I would say she brings what he doesn't bring on every level. She is made to complement him, to complete him, to be the other side of the equation in her physical nature, in her emotional nature, in her spiritual nature, in her psychological nature, in her intellectual nature, in every respect, she is designed to be what he is missing. So that the two of them, when they come together, become one. Become one. And so God says, very good, and Adam agrees. <laughs> Adam definitely agrees. He's like, oh, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Finally, bone of my bones, he says, and flesh of my flesh. She was, she'll be called woman because she was taken from man. And it's, it's funny that in English, those two words work together very much like the Hebrew words do. Ish and Isha. She, she is not exactly me, but she is just like me, but, not, but only in this perfect way where we fit together to be a whole thing. Together. And then Moses gives this interesting comment 
in the text. He says, this is why men leave their parents and find wives to this day. Because men and women need each other. The two become one. Human beings are created to find fullness, physical, mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, in this relationship, lived together in fellowship with God. Now, I'm sorry to sort of break in in this moment to talk about this because it's kind of annoying to me that we have to talk about this, but it's important in our day and age to notice men are men and women are women. And they are not the same. And this is not a social construct. This is a divine construct. This is created by God. And so we're in the context of the book of Ephesians talking about walking in wisdom, and we need to be wise enough not to be fooled by the foolishness of this world that denies the reality of natural gender. The scriptural account of the creation of humanity has gender as a necessary and essential and even basic component to all of human society. And to attack the institution of marriage as we so often do in our culture today is suicidal. And we do not want to be fooled. We want to walk in wisdom. And that includes noticing. God said, I will make him a suitable partner. And he didn't make another Adam. He made a woman for the man. Now, We all have to try to recover from that little detour and talk about, well, then, what is this thing about submitting? And we've been talking about submitting to one another. And we might notice, like we did last time, who, why, what, and how. Well, who? Who's supposed to submit to whom? Well, in these two verses, a wife is supposed to submit to her own husband. In the next paragraph, he's going to talk about husbands and how they are to submit to their wives. Okay, so we're on the section about wives. Everyone in the church is called upon to develop a submissive way of life, submitting to everyone. This idea should characterize life in the church. And now we're simply talking about the first example of this in day-to-day living wives to their husbands. And that's literally what the text says. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ or in reverence for Christ or out of respect for Christ or in order to honor Christ, submitting to one another, wives, to your husbands. That's literally how it reads. 
He doesn't repeat the word submitting because he's already said it. Wives to your husbands. And then he's going to talk to husbands to, uh, in relation to their wives. And then he's going to talk to children in relation to their parents. And then he's going to talk to parents in relation to their children. And then he's going to talk to bosses in relation to the people who work for them and the people who work for them in relation to their bosses. All these regular everyday relationships, he is simply applying the principle How do we submit to one another? So, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So our second question was why? For what purpose? And the answer to that question was out of reverence for Christ. The elevation of Christ is the motive and the purpose of this submission. One person submits to another in order to exalt Christ. A wife submits to her husband in order to exalt Christ or because she has exalted Christ in her own thinking. Both are true. It is both the motive and the purpose, reverence for Christ. So the wife does this in the most direct fashion imaginable. In her fellowship with her husband, she exhibits respect for the headship of Christ by exhibiting respect for the headship of her husband. That's just what the text says. He's the head. How do I show Christ to be the head? I respect my husband as the head. It's pretty simple. It's very straightforward. This is kind of stated emphatically in the last verse in this section, verse 33. I don't know if you have your Bible open. You could just look down to the bottom of the page. He says, When he gets to the end, he says, now, everyone should recognize I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and the church as it is exhibited in the relationship between a husband and his wife. So, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, what's really interesting is that word respect we've read before here in the book of Ephesians. It's in this sentence. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Same word. So the wife is called upon here to submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ by showing that same thing toward her husband which is translated with the word respect at the end of the chapter and is translated with the word reverence at the, at the beginning of this section. It's the word phobos, which means fear. Now, that doesn't mean a wife is supposed to be afraid of her husband any more than it means the church should be afraid of Christ. But this word fear is used in this sense, in this sense of awesome honor. 
awesome honor. Because she honors Christ, she pays that sort of honor to her husband. And in order to honor Christ, she pays that sort of honor to her husband. Now, this could be really difficult because so many husbands are nothing like Christ. But that's what she's called upon to do. And she does it not because he deserves it, but because Christ deserves it. And she doesn't do it because she has to. She does it because she can and because Christ will be honored. That's the why. Remember, the goal of all this mutual submission is the elevation of Christ. This submission is something one engages in joyfully and voluntarily for Christ's sake. It follows from my experience of the love and grace of God in Christ. It's in the light of God's love and grace. This becomes a sensible way to live. It's part of walking in wisdom. Now, that might be why, but what, what is this submission when it comes to wives, when it comes to this reverence, this respect, this acknowledging of the headship of the husband? Well, marriage is also created to illustrate the relationship of the fellowship of God with his people. In the Old Testament, marriage is used to illustrate the relationship of God to the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, the relationship of Christ to the church, which is called his bride. So husbands, in the very next section, which we'll look at next week, are called upon to demonstrate the sacrificial, sanctifying love of Christ to their wives, to show just what kind of Savior we have in Jesus in relation to their wives. Hmm. The sort of serving, humbling, you know, Jesus who puts himself last to lift us up, a husband puts himself below his wife to lift up his wife. But that's next week. Like Christ, the husband is the head. But like Christ, his leadership is serving, not lording. His leadership is serving not lording. Now, the part of the wife corresponds to that, but it has the same purpose, and that is to testify to the goodness of God's grace in Christ. The husband plays the role of Christ, showing just what kind of Savior we have. The wife lives in a way that shows what sort of faith, confidence, trust the church has in Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? Well, I would say this. The first thing about submitting to Christ is not 
doing what he says. No. We're all miserable failures at that. The first thing about submitting to Christ is, is entirely a matter of freely receiving what he provides. It is a matter of freely receiving his grace, his salvation, his redemption. We simply trust him. And trusting him, we find ourselves following him. In that order. We find ourselves following him and we become partners with him in the gospel enterprise. We glorify the goodness of his love and grace in the world. There's some critical words in the text about the husband that we'll talk about in detail next week, but things the husband does, like Christ does, Christ sanctifies his bride to present her holy to himself. Sanctify and holy. Christ sanctifies the church to present her to himself holy. And so just as we are called to present ourselves to God in Christ as living sacrifices, a wife is called to be entirely dedicated to her husband. Demonstrating her confidence, her trust in his love and goodness. To become one with him. To be his suitable partner. To put it in the language of Genesis. Now, in that, there might be something you could call obedience, but I don't think that's the best word for it. Jesus said this to his disciples in the upper room, the foundation of the church. He said this to them, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus tells his disciples they are not his servants, they are his partners in the gospel. And here in Ephesians, we are the body of Christ. We, one with him, we are his presence in the world now. There's a union between Christ and the church. And that is the nature of the relationship as it is proposed here for a wife to her husband. So submission doesn't mean enter into a permanent master and slave relationship with the wife as the slave. We went over that last time. It's not as simple as just letting the husband have his way all the time. In fact, a wife that was doing that would not be really submissive in a biblical way. Submission, as we talked last week, is voluntary, voluntarily relating to another person for the real benefit of that person at one's own expense. It means everything we've read in the book of Ephesians about building people up in love. 
It is to envision my success as making a positive contribution to the success of others for the exaltation of Christ. We are to be grown people who make our decisions and design our relationships according to God's word. We voluntarily enter into a marital partnership, recognizing that each of the two partners brings something the other is missing. Some of this is because one is a man and the other is a woman. Some of this is because we're just unique individuals. We come together to form a union. One flesh, one new man in Christ. We operate in the world for the building up of the one person we are together. We succeed or fail together. So this is about looking out for the interests of the one. In the marriage relationship, we know that the unifying purpose, the purpose that draws us into one, is not the success of the man. But the revelation of the image of the triune God in the loving fellowship of a husband and his wife. So there's equality of nature and status and the demonstration of the union of Christ with his church. The details are a thing to be worked out in the unique context of each relationship. There are things women are better at than men in general. And then there are men and women you couldn't say that about. There are things men simply cannot do. There's never been a man to give birth. Husbands are called upon to exercise sacrificial, loving leadership for the benefit of their wives. Wives are called upon to respond to that leadership to show confidence and respect for the man they married. They are both called upon to live in unity, to find their satisfaction in their oneness. And I got to stop and ask, why do we fall into competition? I just want to point out to you that if you find yourself in competition with your spouse, you have fallen out of what God wants. What God is looking for is an expression of unity in which each of the two plays a unique part. But it's a one. It's a one thing. Just like in the body of Christ, we are one and we are one with him. And this means, I believe, that a wife's submission sometimes calls upon her to exercise some leadership. To share the wisdom God has given her. The husband plays the role of Christ. But here's the thing about 
cry about husbands. They are not infallible like Christ. They are wrong. In fact, I don't know, but I think if you asked which of the two is more likely to be right about any given thing, the wife probably wins. So she's not really serving the oneness of their union. She's not really biblically submitting herself if she just goes along with whatever he says all the time, even following him into foolishness or worse. So it's a thing you have to work out together as a partnership. What does... What is the exact who is what in this fellowship? And things like who washes the dishes and who builds the tool shed depends on who likes to do what and who's good at it. So figure it out. There's not a rule that says husbands have to build tool sheds and wives have to do the cooking. That's not in the Bible any place. You work it out. You figure it out. She's good at this. He's good at that. And together, you are walking together as one in Christ to exalt Christ. We just read Proverbs 31, that passage about, you know, excellent wife. Here's something I notice about that description of that woman in Proverbs 31. She is a commercial success. She's out there working in the world, selling stuff, figuring out. She's getting stuff done. She's getting up early and staying up late, working hard. And You know, in that text, the only thing the husband does is sit around. I don't know that that's really a model to follow, but uh, he just gets the honor of his amazing wife. Everyone looks at him and says, man, how did you get so lucky? But the point of all that is her submission to her husband Her contribution to their success as a family is is ambitious and hardworking, and it isn't limited by all those weird cultural norms we have often placed upon it. But it is something to be worked out between a husband and a wife so that they figure it out together and become together effective. The last question we asked was how. How does someone actually become a submissive person? And I do believe that a husband can make this task really hard for his wife. A husband who's not living the way this text encourages him to live will make it really hard for his wife. The power, though comes from the fullness of Christ through the strengthening of the Spirit in the inner man.
That's the power in the whole book of Ephesians. The spirit in the inner man leading us to devotion to Christ so that out of devotion to Christ, I do what I am called to do. Whether the people I'm submitting myself to are making it easy or not. We notice that this can be done unilaterally. I don't think that's the best way. And we notice that the nature of this submission thing depends on the nature of the relationship. And now we've looked at half of this marriage relationship. The third thing we noticed last time and how is it's a thing that must be given. It's a thing that must be given. So I want to say this to the husbands here. If you have to demand this from your wife, you are not doing it. If you have to demand this from your wife, you have gotten it wrong. And we're going to talk about that next time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good guidance of it. Thank you for the truth of it. Lord, help us. Help us to be inspired by the love of Christ so that everything we do in submitting to one another is out of reverence for Christ and for the exaltation of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.